from the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale. This is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott CEO Ed Pazwali talks to local television personality Glenna Milberg. Here's your host, Ed Pazwali. Today, we're honored to be joined by my friend Glenna Milberg. Many of you know Glenna is the co-host of Local 10's public affairs broadcast this week in South Florida. From Category 5 hurricanes to crime to campaigns, Glenna has covered some of the top news stories and political stories of the past decade or two in her role at Local 10. Glenna, welcome. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Glenna, we quickly are approaching this election, and this election cycle has been, of course, uh, long and interesting. Fun. It's been fun. It's fun. been fun. It's been fun. <laughs> so tell us some of your observations as we head into the final weeks of the campaign. Well, you know, we all like to say we're heading into the final weeks of the campaign, but people are voting. I mean, I haven't yeah, looked at the that's true. like recently, but my last check, it's approaching like a million seven Floridians. Votes are already in, and we know, you know, voter turnout typically, that's a sizable chunk of votes that are already in. But most certainly the campaigns have cranked up. I mean, I know your inbox, my inbox is filled with appearances from every candidate in every race, crossing the state. And what's interesting to me is I think this election, more than most, maybe last election a couple of years ago, but it seems in this moment that we're in, candidates have really begun to focus on what their messaging is. I will tell you from a press perspective, that's about the last thing we want is messaging. You know, we, no, I'm being really honest. And not that messaging is not the truth, but messaging, it's like taking uh, the morning paper and reading a bunch of headlines, but never reading the story. And that's been a very difficult thing. I will say this election is, you know, especially in television news, which is vastly different in many ways from print, it's really difficult to pin candidates down for our viewers, not for me, it's not about me, but to really help our viewers get a sense of what this candidate stands for, not just what party they're in and what talking points the party has given this person to deliver, but who is this candidate? What kind of thinker is this candidate? What's the vision? What's the work ethic? Why do they have the positions they have? What is that life experience like? That's been very difficult in many ways in these last couple of months because of that hammering on message that's so important, especially to the parties at large. So how do you deal with that? Because given the nature of television, it's really in short snippets. And so the idea, let's just take the governor's race as an example. You had two distinctly different candidates and different styles, frankly. How does that come across in your mind about how voters can accurately look at where the candidates really, really stand and who they really, really are? Well, both have records, um, not only as both have records as governors, which is so interesting, and both have records in in other roles in, in Congress. So the average voter, even a really engaged and intelligent voter, will never take the time to look up votes, look up records, look up what speeches they've made, look up how they've answered different questions. You know, that's kind of when I do my research approaching an interview, that's kind of what I do, because when you hear the messaging, you hear talking points, you hear the headlines, and anyone who follows a candidate from event to event, 
I can like lip sync their speeches with them because I've heard them so often. But beyond that, a lot of what they say doesn't always comport with how they voted or what they've done, for better or worse, no judgment there, which I think raises a really interesting question. You take someone like candidate Charlie Crist, who was a Republican, was an independent, was a Democrat. You know, the spin on his opponents is he's a chameleon. He will go whichever way the wind blows and whatever politically experienced. You know, to his supporters, I've met people who find that a very refreshing, positive kind of way to be because they'll say, well, he's evolved. You know, he thought this and he realized how wrong that was. And so he's changed his tune. That's an example of how people look through. I know if no one's watching this Zoom broadcast, you're batting your head from side to side. Because you come from a partisan angle, and sure. so you think the former, not the latter. Well, I knew, really- I knew Charlie Chris when he was a staunch conservative yeah. Republican and yeah. knew him well. And, and what's interesting, you know, he gets, um, and I'll talk about Ron DeSantis in a, in a moment, but what's one of the really interesting things about Chris is that, you know, lately, as we speak today, I'm not sure this is still the case, but a couple of weeks ago, he made the abortion issue, abortion rights the headline of his campaign. He actually said that to us. Yeah. Yep. As of today, it's going to be all this all the time, which which hasn't really panned out. However, people will say, oh, he used to be a conservative against abortion, blah, 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 and now he's pro-abortion. Well, the, the truth is he's not pro-abortion at all. He's pro-choice. And I found a speech that he made as a Republican in a debate, uh, late 1990s, as far back as that, he actually said as a Republican in a debate that he was pro-choice, pro-life against abortion, but willing to be someone who lets the woman choose her health care. He said that. So those who think he's changed his tune on abortion, he really hasn't, for better or worse. So you would not know that unless you sat and went back into his past and, and really looked that up. And so now when he's painted as a change maker million. And I think that's fair, although polling suggests that governor's race, DeSantis is likely to win by a substantial margin. But the bigger issue to voters is what do they get when they win? So what do they get if Charlie Chris wins? What do they get if Ron DeSantis wins? And I think there's some level of certainty around what Ron DeSantis brings if he remains in the governor's mansion. Do you agree with that? Yes. And I'll add to that. This is a really interesting race because there is no doubt the governor plays on a national stage. And you really think logically about that. Anyone who says or disagrees with the theory that he is looking at 2024 just isn't watching, just isn't awake. Whether he, one of the big criticisms of Democrats, and you saw this play out in the debate, is, oh, he won't answer the question. He won't answer the question. Well, I don't don't blame any candidate for not answering that question because, A, once you answer a question about whether you're running for president or not, the rules change for him as governor. So, of course, he's not answering the question. That's pretty smart not to answer that question. And and so what if he doesn't answer the question? Because right now he's running for governor. You're watching him govern. You're seeing what he's doing as a leader. You see how strategic he is and how he's got the conservative legislature really doing things that are his agenda now pretty pretty much yeah yeah and and whether or not the majority of the conservative legislature wants to go along with that or not they are going along with it because of his leadership style and his strategy so i I think you're right you do see 
what you have and what you will get. Of course, the people who are popular leaders in all the states are eyeing 2024. Of course they are. And, um, and if the governor is doing that, then he's doing it in a really smart way. You know, people who are his opponents are trying to use that as a wedge, like, oh, he's not paying attention to the state of Florida. Uh, I would objectively and non-partisan purpose, I would disagree with that. I see the governor paying very much attention to Florida issues every day. Every day. Yeah. And, and I did find it interesting in the way Governor DeSantis responded to that pointed question from Charlie Crist. Although I was surprised he just didn't turn and say, hey, you know, Charlie, since 1996, you've been running for the next office. I mean, so it'd be interesting. Uh, let's move on to the second big race, which is the Val Demings Marco Rubio race. How do you see not the not the result, but how do you see that playing out? It's a, it's a little bit of a different dynamic than the governor's race, but obviously both are impacted by one another. The governor's race and the oh, Senate correct. race are not run in a vacuum; they're on the same ballot. Right, one hundred percent. I think you know, watching my Twitter feed, watching my email, I think there's a real effort by the Republican Party to convince voters that a red wave is coming. It's not for me to judge whether that's true or not, but I, I see the messaging and I wonder whether that messaging affects voters much like early on, I think it was about last November when the Republican Party of Florida announced that they've surpassed the Democrats in voter registration. In my mind, it's like at this point, so what, practically speaking, because any party, can, any voter can vote whichever which way, except for sure. the primaries. And you do have 20% of the voters not affiliated with either party. Right, exactly. Um, but where I was going with this is that messaging really dampened the Democratic donor base thinking that they should put money in Florida. Well, you know, we see the handwriting on the wall. Maybe we spend our money elsewhere in Florida. Democrats really suffered from that kind of fundraising slowdown because of that messaging. So now we go into the Senate race and that messaging of a red wave and the polls right now as they are showing the governor's race not very close at all. And, and I will just go on record as saying, I'm not sure I believe in polls based on what I've seen in the last couple of years, but you can't ignore them. Obviously. So I wonder if the kind of so what of that doesn't translate into some people thinking, oh, well, then why, why would I even bother to go vote if I'm a Democrat? Or, you know, I wonder what that messaging is going to do to voter intentions, I guess. But Val Demings is really going to face a handicap if there are people who are going to the polls and bubble in all D's or all R's because I've met those voters, those voters who have no idea who they're voting for. But if there's an R next to their name, I'm going to bubble it in. If there's a D next to them, I'm going to bubble it in. So she may really face a bit of headwinds because of that. But look, you know, Val Demings is an amazing candidate for the Democrats. She is. She checks all the boxes. She's smart. She's got those kind of je ne sais quoi leadership qualities that you really can't put your finger on. And it's going to come out to turn out. I mean, I guess you could say that for every race, but I've met very few Republicans who would ever vote for a Val Demings. And I've met no Democrats who would ever vote for Marco Rubio. For the record, I, I don't know Val Demings well. I've covered Marco probably half of my life. So I feel comfortable like talking about, talking to him, talking about him, knowing who he is and where he is. And Val Demings, I'm just starting to get to know. She's not easy to get to know campaign-wise. They're very staged and scripted as many campaigns are. I don't say that as a not on her campaign one bit. Right. I did have an opportunity really quickly. She did stop and actually chat with me one-on-one -on -one when she got off the bus at an event a couple of weeks ago. 
which I, I really enjoyed. And I got, you know, maybe one or two insights because there was no campaign script. It was just a conversation between us. It was the day after the debate. And so I really appreciated that. And I feel like I came away with that hearing more than her stem speech. And I do think she is a very good leader. And I think that's important, as you see in, in the governor. I mean, the governor has that kind of leadership quality, love or hate her policies, love or hate his politics. You can't deny that he is that kind of leader. You saw that kind of in Barack Obama, you know, politics aside, whatever. He's got that kind of magnetism, that kind of draw, that that a good leader really has. And, and I think that's important in this day and age for a politician because you're on camera so much and you're seen so much. Sure. I can tell you that the concern on some Republican side is that this idea of a big red wave, Republicans may say, ah, oh, we have it in the bag. I'm not going to go make the extra effort to go vote. So it kind of cuts both ways in some respect. I would say to you, Politics is also about an allocation of resources, right? That goes to your point about the money drying up in Florida, because, you know, where do you get the biggest bang for your book? If you're the National Democratic Party, where do you go? Do you put money in Pennsylvania? Do you put money uh, behind the Senate race in Florida? That's a very different analysis. Or do you go to Arizona to protect Mark Kelly? Those are the kind of discussions about where you put your money. The real question is the other side is in order to move the needle in Florida, just the nature of it, right, is Florida is a big place. So in order to move the needle even a little bit, you still have to spend a ton of money compared to some other states. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just saw the figures uh, on as we speak here, the figures in the Senate race, the Rubio Demings race. I think the TV spending is above 50 million combined for the two of them. And, and they're not all that far apart. This is how my head goes. What we could do with $50 million to solve some problems in South Florida, no knock on that, ads pay my salary, no doubt. <laughs> but, but wow, $50 million on TV advertising for candidates. You just got to blow that up into the big picture nationwide. That erases the deficit right there if we take everybody, all the candidates' campaign spending. There is some basis to that kind of policy. <laughs> the, the other... Interesting news on the Senate race, though, is where Miami-Dade seems to be trending. The question becomes, will Miami-Dade outperform from a Republican standpoint? That goes back to the messaging piece that's permeated our local community around where national Democrats may sit. Maybe not the particular candidate, but where national Democrats sit and how that's being utilized and changing a little bit of the performance models coming out of even Miami-Dade. Do you see that? Could be. I, I myself really haven't been looking at that firsthand, so I'm not sure I can speak to that totally. But I, but I will say, just look at the state Democrats announced a, a bus tour earlier. It was last week, earlier this week. I don't know. My days kind of run together. But they made a, a very big announcement of this bus tour. And they made a very big deal about, we're not just riding through a town. We're going to stop. They're identifying pockets of the state. And they're going to stop and get off the bus and knock on doors. And I will say, I have seen despite all the flyers you get and the TV ads that you see, when somebody beats a candidate and has a conversation, not just a door knock, hey, here's my literature I'm running by, but really stops and has a conversation. I think that human connection trumps everything that a candidate can do. Now, how do you do that in a state with 21 million people? But I think in this moment for state Democrats, I think to your point, they see that's kind of what they have to do at this point, because 
it's like all or nothing now for them. They've got nothing to lose. Well, the other piece is these state races, Glenna, you know, the state house and state center races, because that's if you were looking to kind of chop at and, ha- you know, to go, how do you eat a dinosaur one bite at a time? It's sort of a vegetarian. So, a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I hear you. But Kidding, the, I'm not a vegetarian. But the, but the idea of the state Senate and state house races, do you see that permeating the difference in the party funding, the difference in the party organization, the difference maybe in the quality of candidates? Do you see any of those factors playing in even on some of the more state legislative races? I think the quality of the candidates on both sides, I think you've seen a couple of candidates, no disrespect to them whatsoever. But I think as a political candidate, I think you see on both sides, a couple of candidates that were obviously recruited to try to tick up that number that might not be the best choice of candidate for that district or that party. I am not going to name names because I truly don't want to be disrespectful to anyone. Obviously, I come from a place where I really believe that if someone is going to be going through the hellscape of a campaign that it, it takes to do now, I really think that that person wants to do good and wants to do a bit of public service. I come from that base level until I see otherwise. And even the most inexperienced, for whatever partisan reason they run, I think the intent is good. That said, there are some candidates that I kind of raise my eyebrows and I think, oh, if a voter is really paying attention, this is a planted candidate. And this is for this particular party to try to just rack up the numbers that they do or don't have in Tallahassee. I answered your question, but but I think that is definitely a thing. I tend to agree with you. I give people credit who want to run because it, it is a gauntlet that you have to run through and it is an yeah. effort and you have to have some well-meaning motive in order to go through that piece. And so I and, and you want to try to encourage candidates to continue to step up and run. I mean, regardless of what their views are on the world, I think that's important. Let me wrap this up by saying thank you so much. I'd love to get your take after the election a little bit and see what you think of the evolving role of This Week in South Florida, as well as the media in general. I want to kind of talk through that a little bit, but we'll wait till after the election and see what the results show. People are out voting. You're right. People are already out voting. The last numbers I saw this morning were just shy of two million votes already cast in Florida. It's interesting to see if the change in party registration has any impact on it. I will share with you the concern initially was when we had the influx of folks from other places, whether that would change the demographic and be more favorable to Democrats. So far, that hasn't shown, at least in the registration numbers, but you really don't know from a voter performance level until we get a chance to dissect what happens after this election. Exactly. I'd love it. I appreciate you having me. Always fun to talk to you. Always fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Glenna Milberg, thank you. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. Please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.